Okay, so these true-false quiz, quizzes go a little faster than some of the others, so let's go ahead and work our way through this. Number one, Jesus was born without sin because sin is transmitted only by a father, that is a man. Okay, we got a lot of falses, and that's the correct answer. So, so then let me ask, why is Jesus born without sin? If not because sin is transmitted by the Father. Okay, so that's 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 part of it. Okay, so part of it is that he is he is assigned by God to be the second Adam, and so he is not represented then by Adam, but that's only part of it. Right. So what 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 happens in procreation? What is created? Okay, so a person and a person with a sin nature if the parents are sinful. So, And so Christ could not, A, have a an additional person, much less, less a sinful one. So had mom and dad come together to produce a separate person, we would have had a, two problems. One, it would have been a separate person that would be competing with the existing personhood that came down and clothed himself with flesh. And then secondly, that person would actually be a sinful person by default because that's all that mom and dad produce, a sinful child. So that's how Jesus is born without inherited sin. So he's born without imputed sin because he is assigned by God to be the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the second Adam and he avoids inherited sin. Uh, by the virgin birth. Okay? Good. Number two, Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God divides soul and spirit, means that the Bible is able to distinguish subtle differences between the two immaterial parts of the human psyche. It's that long. It's got to be false, right? <laughs> so, so, so what does Hebrews 4.12 mean? Very good. So it's it's not that it's distinguishing between soul and spirit or separating from from each other. I mean, the question would be why why ever would you want that to happen? Um, but rather, it penetrates. It's incisive, penetrating to divulge then what the secrets of the heart are. So yes, very good. Number three, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it is referencing our wicked physical bodies. False. What does he, he answer first? So what does the flesh mean? If it's false, it's referring to the sin nature that Very is good. residing in it. Very good. So it's the sin nature, and that's, and that's actually how the NIV translates that word uh, in order that there not be confusion on that score. Okay? Number four, the Bible roundly condemns the practice of cremation. False. In fact, we do discover multiple occasions where cremation takes place, many times without comment at all. Sometimes it is considered a positive thing. For instance, when Saul's body was cremated uh, by those who discovered him on the battlefield in order to prevent the Philistines from, uh, from ravaging the body, uh, and they were actually commended for it. Um, of course, we don't want to engage in any sort of activity that does not treat the body 
with dignity by virtue of, on, on account of what it once was. It was part of an image bearer. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that cremation is wrong. In fact, the Bible doesn't really say. In fact, it does seem that there can be dignified approaches to cremation, and that seems to be the concern, uh, that there be uh, dignity maintained. Um, we suggested that perhaps there is some, some you know, leaning in the Scripture towards Christian burial. That does seem to be the practice, uh, the predominant practice. And there does seem to be perhaps an occasion there for for uh, gospel witness and comfort with the uh, you know with the uh, with the uh, traditional ritual that's attached you know ashes to ashes just to, uh, dust to dust and then you know, they put them down with with the hope of the resurrection right and so there's this there's this this hopefulness that just as he or she goes down. He or she is eventually going to come up, and perhaps that can be a witnessing tool or a source of encouragement for uh, for the grieving family, uh, but it does not seem to rise to the level of something that's necessary, uh, at least biblically. Okay? Some of you have faced that question. Some of you will. And so hopefully that gives you at least a sense of uh, what the Bible has to say about the topic. Okay? Any final questions from last week? So last week we talked about the physical aspect of humanity. Today, tonight, we'll talk about the spiritual aspect or the immaterial aspect, perhaps is a better way of putting it. Some of this will go fairly quickly, uh, but there are a couple of questions along the way that may bog us down a little bit. Uh, But as far as uh, going through the terms, I think we can go through that fairly quickly. There's a lot of terms that are used to describe man's immaterial aspect. Tons of them. You know, heart, mind, soul, will, uh, spirit. You know, so there, there's a lot of them. And I think what it does is speaks to the great complexity of the human spirit. And we also need to recognize that these terms are contextually colored, making those terms very difficult to distance from the philosophical milieu in which they were coined. So, for instance... The Old and New Testament terms for soul, nefesh and suke, respectively, while essentially synonyms radically differ from one another in their secular origin and conception. The Hebrew idea of the immaterial and the Greek idea of the immaterial are very different. And so even though those terms are used in the scriptures, uh, the origin of those terms, you know, leads us to some discussions about them. Arriving at a biblical understanding about the immaterial portion of man can be fairly challenging. So let's let's start here with terms for the soul and spirit, and I'm going to alternate here between the Greek and the Hebrew for the, so, so Old Testament, New Testament first. And I think I put in the uh, the uh, English equivalent here so that you're not just uh, seeing gobbledygook on the page. Uh, so first here, nefesh. This is a Hebrew word, has as its etymological origin uh, the term breath. So man, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and be, and man became a living being, a nefesh. 
So a breathing creature perhaps gives us a little bit of a sense of what's necessary to be a nefesh. There has to be this function of breathing. It's an elastic term that separates living, breathing beings with psychosomatic control centers, brains, that is animalian life, from what we sometimes call living things that are non-breathing and not that don't have psychosomatic control centers, such as plants. Okay, If you look in the scriptures, uh, the scriptures routinely call people nephesh, they call animals nephesh, but never a plant. Okay, so we sort of have to get out of our heads, you know, what you learned in biology class, you know, of the of the categories of living things. Uh, in the biblical usage, a living thing that is a nephesh is only something that has animalian life. That is, it's a breathing uh, being with a psychosomatic control center or a brain. Okay. Plants are never called living. I mean, there, and there's a sense in which, by the scientific definition, I'm not trying to deny that they're living, but by the biblical definition or the biblical use of the term, uh, they are not classified as living things in the same sense that animals and humans are. We recognize that they're different kinds of life. The term has reference, then, to the whole of a living being, including physical appetites, affections, and religious sentiments along the way. You're supposed to love the whole the Lord with all of your nephesh. Okay, so it's something that is involved in not only your uh, your your immaterial being, but also how it how it how it how it uh, expresses itself in affections and even worship. Now, while the term is sometimes used of animals, the vast majority of times have reference to persons, which are the most complex of living beings. And this sort of leads to the question that somebody asked me right at the very end, actually after class was over last time, what's the difference between a person and an animal? And uh, uh, those who are trichotomists, uh, you know, sort of have a a little bit of an easy answer. You know, they have a soul but not a spirit. Um, The problem is, as as we've seen, soul and spirit are really indistinguishable in scripture so while that is an easy answer it probably isn't the right one uh, so so what is the difference well human souls are clearly more complex than animal souls they're marked by all the functions of personality uh, I say discussed earlier in this course they're actually discussed later in this course uh, uh, as part of the image of God. There are functions of personality uh, that uh, we're going to, to discuss here uh, that that make a person like God in a way that animals are not. Primarily, the differences seem to center on the fact that persons are by definition spiritual being. They have an enduring existence apart from the body which with which they can relate with God on a number of levels, linguistic, religious, moral, these are the kinds of things that animals uh, can't participate in. Other factors include self-consciousness, which I define sort of glibly as the ability to look in a mirror and know what to do. Self-determination, uh, that is the ability to make choices apart from brute instinct. Um, 
As we shall see below, these functions are the most fruitful elements for defining the image of God or the imago Dei. Now, you'd like sort of a clean answer to this uh, question, uh, but I'm not sure I can give you one uh, that is as neat and, and crisp as the soul-spirit thing. The problem is that that's just the wrong answer. I think, I think it's, a, it's a more complex answer than just saying, oh, they've got souls, but they don't have spirits. They obviously do have some complexity greater than that of animals. I mean, you can look in, into their eyes and they can communicate even, you know, without without speaking. And we, we recognize all that. Nonetheless, uh, they obviously lack certain things that people have. And we'll actually sort of work our way through those. And we're going to describe these as the elements that make a person part of the image of God. Okay, I, I don't know if I answered it, the question sufficiently, but thoughts on that? Yeah, in other words, your dog isn't going to be in heaven. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Certainly your cat won't be there. <laughs> Dogs have a chance, but not the cat. <laughs> okay. The Greek, I guess... They they are described as nephesh or living things. Now it's a word that's often translated soul, but it's a word that's used of animals. So when I say yeah, when, when I say they they are they are living things, I'm not saying that they have an enduring existence apart from the body. Uh, so so that's not what I'm saying. So that that's what that's what it means to be a spiritual being. Uh, but they, but obviously there is something going on in that little brain of theirs that is more than just the sum total of their of their constituent parts. And so they're described there as, as nephesh. I know my dog is. crazy. Some dogs, there's just not much going on up there. <laughs> no. Okay, Greek then. The Greek counterpart to this term that you find in the New Testament is suke, from which we get the word psychology. Uh, so the Greek term, uh, term likewise refers to the whole person, that is, life as it is experienced in the universe, like the Hebrew it encompasses all of the thoughts, experience, activities of the person. The soul can experience physical and psychological impulses. My soul makes, my soul rejoices and exults in God. Uh, or contrarily, in, in chapter 26, where, where, where Jesus' soul is grieved. Uh, religious sentiments. But seems to have as its controlling idea that of life the experience of a conscious living being. So consciousness perhaps is a word that sort of that throws itself in there. Plants are not conscious. Animals, though, have consciousness. They can go to sleep. Unlike the Greek concept of the soul, suke, as entombed or imprisoned in the body, however, the Bible speaks of the body as indispensable to the soul's experience and expression. Without a body, man's soul is described in 2 Corinthians 5 as naked or hampered in its activities and expressions. So without a body, the soul is limited in how it can express itself. 
Now, there's, there's a great deal of mystery here. Uh, we do know that uh, the soul separated from the body is yet capable of observation, of thinking, and such. Nonetheless, there, it's pretty clear that, that Paul doesn't look forward to this period of time where he will be a naked soul. Okay? There's, there's, there's something debilitating about not having a body, and Paul does not really look forward to it. You know, so he has that, you know, that tug of war, that internal tug of war. Right? You know, if I if I leave my body, I'll be with Christ, which is really good. Nonetheless, I kind of like having my body around. You know, it's we we, we part with it rather grudgingly, uh, and that's that's a good thing because humans are designed to be a psychosomatic unity. Okay, a body and a soul together. Uh, that's the ideal. Okay, so man's soul is naked and hampered in its activities and expressions apart from the body. And there's this verse here that I mentioned to you earlier, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Apart from the body, uh, man's soul is unaware of what's going on in the uh, in the realm of the living. Yeah. Well, what happened when Samuel got conjured up? Yeah, yeah, I'll, we'll actually talk about that here in a little bit here, but... Uh, apparently, this is an exceptional circumstance where a miracle took place, um, and, and there's good reasons to think this was the case. That the uh, the witch seems totally blown away by the fact that she's successful in bringing him up, and he he actually gives us some of our information about the afterlife. He he, he comes up and says, "Why have you disturbed my rest?" So we know something about. The afterlife from that experience, he's he's in comfort. He's 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 resting and waiting uh, for the resurrection of the dead. Not he's he, it's not a bad experience. He's obviously resting in Abraham's bosom. Uh, nonetheless, it's it's not the ideal. The ideal is the resurrected state. So, good sense from that. Okay. Now we move to the word spirit, which in uh, Hebrew is the word ruach. The basic lexical gloss here for this term is air or wind. More precisely, however, it has to do with the energy source that stands behind its own visible effects. Uh, just as the invisible wind stands behind the sails of a ship as a source of energy, so also man's spirit stands behind his thoughts and activities as their source. Now, the two terms can be used synonymously, but this term ruach, spirit, seems to be nuanced to denote the separate and invisible cognitive volitional control center of the person, which is a narrower concept. It is, And it's for this reason, it would seem that no animal is ever described as a spirit in in the scriptures. They're described as living things, but not as having spirit. That is, an ongoing existence apart from a physical body. Greek counterpart here is the term pneuma. So spirit, uh, pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, pneumatic you know, pneumatic tools, right? The Greek counterpart then speaks to the invisible energizing force that governs the thoughts and expressions of the person. Again, emphasis here is on the source behind the effects. John 3, 3 to 8 speaks about 
the spirit going where it wishes and no one knows where it is coming until its effects are seen. In principle, Second Peter one twenty one, where the where the spirit is uh, operating to carry along uh, the scripture writers, such that they are writing the Christian scriptures. Again, it must be stressed here that a, a, a numa has an enduring identity apart from a physical body. That's the, that seems to be the issue here. Connecting him with God in a special way, who is likewise spirit. God is pure spirit. He has an existence apart from a body. He has a perfect existence apart from a physical body and has none in his normal condition. Of course, he adds flesh with Christ, but ordinarily God is pure spirit. And it is here, we find, where true worship occurs. Uh, We don't worship him physically, per se. I mean, there can be some physical ritual and expression. We can bow our heads and close our eyes and things like that. But primarily where worship takes place is in the realm of spirit. It's It's not a physical exercise, per se. So man's spirit is finally inseparable from a material accessory, although it can be temporarily disjoined. So we get a a resurrection body, and then we will be complete at that point uh, once that occurs. There's other less frequent terms for the immaterial aspect of man. Heart, mind, life, strength, the bowels. Seems a little weird for us. Um, you know, just sort of the, the inner part of a person, right? The reins, uh, the inward parts. You know, so there's, a, there's a lot of different nuanced kinds of terms. These are not separate parts of the human immaterial, but rather nuances of what's going on. They have emphases variously on man's cognitive, volitional, psychological capacities, So when we talk about a person's mind, we usually are talking intellectual. When we talk about someone's heart, we're usually talking about his affections. Uh, And so so there's there's little nuances here, but we shouldn't think ultimately of the mind and heart as being separate parts of a human human being. They really are interchangeable. Okay? So they're roughly synonyms and speak to the immaterial center of a person and should not be thought as independent parts. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that follow? Questions? Thoughts? Okay, so that's the immaterial. What does it do? Well, like we said, it's sort of the control center of the person that expresses itself physically, essentially, with sensate function through the body. The intersection of the soul and the body in the human brain and glands is a great mystery. You know, how is it that the immaterial and the material connect? Something happens up there that it's hard for me. It's way beyond my pay grade to know exactly what's going on uh, when the immaterial connects with the material. And that's what's going on. And we we sometimes distinguish between mind and brain mind being the invisible part, brain being the the gray matter. Um, But in some sense, there's a connection there between the two at this control center of the person. Okay? So the intersection of soul and body and the brain and glands is a great mystery, not developed, and it's not 
properly a subject of scientific inquiry. It's not as though you're, uh, you're an encephalologist or whatever he is, uh, is going to be able to discover the soul. Uh, through his study, it's just it's just not there. It's it's immaterial. It cannot be observed. Cannot be measured. Uh, but uh, it's still there. Okay. Apart from a body, the soul may exist, but it's it's restricted in its expressions. And apart from the soul, the body cannot function really at all. Okay. It's possible, perhaps, that a soul might leave a body before a bo- before that body is clinically dead. Uh, but we all, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to recognize when someone's soul is gone. It's no longer, it's no longer, it has any connection then with the body that's there. So it's the life center of the person. Both those terms are translated literally dozens of different ways, but the leading translation for both terms is life. Uh, so the rubric for capital punishment is nefesh for nefesh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life, nefesh for nefesh. Uh, the suffering servant poured out his life in death. He poured out his soul, his nefesh, in death. Paul was concerned about the loss of souls. In fact, we, that's the kind of language that's still used in maritime context here, all souls lost or all souls saved. It's, it's, it's drawn, actually, from Acts 27 here. Uh, the idea that if, a, if, a, if, if, if people die, that means their souls were lost. So their, their lives were lost. Job 10.12, you've granted me life and loving kindness. Your care has preserved my spirit. You kept me in life, in some translations. Luke 8.55, her spirit returned to her, uh, and she lived. It's also the seat, then, of man's personhood. Uh, so, in fact, sometimes the, the term is translated person, people. So they accumulated nephishim. They accumulated people. They gathered people around. May the grace of the Lord God be with your spirits. Okay? With you. Okay, uh, 275 persons, souls, were on the ship here again with from Acts 27. And personal functions then seem to accrue uh, to the spirit of man and not so much his body. Okay, So the soul or spirit is the seed of man's morality. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit... There is no guile, no deceit. The soul that sins will die. Now we understand. That's the person who sins will die. Jude 14, the Lord came to execute judgment upon all to convict the ungodly souls, the ungodly people. It's actually untranslated in NIV. The ungodly people of all their ungodly deeds, which they had done in an ungodly way. 1 John 4, 6, spirits are either spirits of truth or spirits of falsehood. So they've got this ethical component that's attached to them. So spirit, the spirit or soul is also the source of man's disposition. An idle soul, an idle person will suffer hunger. So this is 
a dis- this is the source of your dispositional habits and features. He who is trustworthy, a trustworthy spirit, conceals a matter. Paul came to them with a gentle spirit. Okay? So a gentle demeanor, we might say. Unstable souls are easily enticed. So, you know, people who are unmoored, uh, morally speaking, are enticed. The spirit and soul has an intellect. It's able to accumulate information, data. I listen to the reproof of uh, which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. So I learn stuff. Uh, Leviticus 4 speaks of souls sinning unintentionally without thought and then intentional or, or defiantly. So there's different kinds of sins. Sins that are committed without thought and those that are committed with thought by souls. Okay, So they think. Who among men, there's a statement here in 1 Corinthians 2.11, who among men know the thoughts of man except for the spirit of man which is in him? So... You know, we know ourselves by our spirits. In fact, this is the context here is uh, the uh, the transmission of Scripture. Uh, how do, how do we know that what we got from God is the right stuff? Well, because the Holy Spirit is the mediator of it. The Spirit understands the mind of God, is able to take those thoughts and communicate them in the form of words to the spirit of men, so that then they can be put on the page. Okay. And that's the uh, miracle of inspiration. Acts 14, the Jews who disbelieved, disbelieved stirred up the souls. Translated here, the minds of Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Souls and spirits have volition as well. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. A willing uh, spirit here. So it, it, there's, there's volition here. It makes me want to do things. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. My spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. You've ever been there, right? Okay, the spirit is willing. Because that's what spirits do. Do the will of God from the heart. Okay, so the heart, it's the, uh, the soul then is a volitional uh, function. It's the seed of passions. Uh, in fact, your desires, it, it, it's translated desires in Deuteronomy, uh, and the idea is that you are sort of the sum total of your affections. And so your desires are, are translated here, your soul. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered, that is, a quick-tempered spirit, exalts folly. Jesus, deeply moved in his spirit, was troubled, and his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. So that's, again, this immaterial, uh, this is where the passions lie. And then also the source of all religious impulses, my soul thirsts for God. All night my soul longs for you, my spirit seeks you diligently. And then even regeneration is described in these terms here as having a new heart and a new spirit. Now, don't get confused here and imagine that, you know, what you were, you know, you you become a 
totally different being as a result of regeneration. I know that's the language that's sometimes used, but but don't think of you know, okay, so you know, it's 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 no longer uh, Paul there. It's just some there's there's some new spirit that's that's there, and the old spirit is gone. Rather, it's it is a it, it is a if I, if I can put it this way, a shift in the dominant impulse of his spirit, so that his his dominant affections, his dominant uh, his dominant inclinations of his heart, has been switched as a result of what God has done in him, and so he's described then as a new spirit. But don't imagine that the old one has just sort of disappeared, and he's he's a totally new individual that we never knew before. Uh, he's he's the same person he was, but the dominant impulse, the dominant affection or inclination of his heart, has been changed. Okay, we also find then our spirits and our souls are engaged in worship. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not primarily about where you are. And remember, that's the the context question as to whether it was it's okay to, to worship at this location versus that location and what's the answer well the, the primary concern here is not location now it was an issue in the day where one worships nonetheless the primary issue is the engagement of the heart and there is coming a day he says when location won't matter. So it does matter to some degree at that point. There was one place you could worship, you know, up until the time of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Nonetheless, he's, he's anticipating a day when true worship doesn't have to be limited to a specific location. It is it is what takes place in the in the spirit. So, you know, when you're when you're worshiping, um that that's the primary concern that you have. It's not, you know, sometimes we measure the fervency of our worship by whether whether we're <laughs> moves us. And when I talk about moving, I'm talking about physically moving, or, or whether it you know makes us hop around or or enjoy ourselves. Where that's not that's not where it lies. Uh, the engagement of the person is in terms of his soul and spirit, uh, his, his affections, and not necessarily his, the passionate expressions that show, for, show out in, in, in physical movement. So we must worship in spirit and truth. First uh, Corinthians 14 speaks about the spirit praying, singing, praising, loving the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And that's really where worship takes place, at the realm of the soul and the spirit, the immaterial, and not primarily the material. Okay? Questions here on the terms that are used here and the functions of soul and spirit? I don't know if you've done any reading on death and the death process. Mm-hmm. I remember when my dad was dying, um, I was reading about, it's called the detachment phase of death where in fact the nurse she kind of you know talked to us about that she says you know don't be um, you know thrown by you know if your father starts to like detach it's like he doesn't recognize you so what what do you think is happening there is this a spirit 
the soul preparing? Yeah, that's a good question. To I'm leave a, the body. You're above my pay grade there, but uh, <laughs> but but there there is, I think, at some point, you know, and we we said sometimes we talk about there's no higher brain function or no lower brain no brain stem stem activity. At some point, probably we can say the spirit is gone. And because and so what's just happening is a machine is keeping the heart and the lungs doing what they're supposed to do. Um, but, but it's like I mean he wouldn't look at us. He was right. still there. He was still conscious. Yeah. But there was you could tell that his mind was drifting. Drifting off. You know, yeah. Like, I mean, death isn't a process, but at the same time it is hard for us to identify the point at which the spirit departs. Often, I, I don't know that I can give you a clean answer on that. Yeah. But you know, when you see a body in the casket, it doesn't look like the person anymore. I well, mean, it does, but there is something that something you, missing. You can tell just by looking at. It. Yeah, I, I generally try to avoid doing that, but but <laughs> but but I think you're right. I mean. There is a sense in which something is gone. I think you can, you are to treat the body with dignity, but there is something, something very real that is missing that makes it a little bit unnerving at times. It's not the person anymore. You don't see that person. There's, it looks like the body, but it's, I mean, it, it, yeah, and and in fact, we actually find occasions where uh, corpses are called nephesh, but it's, it's really, I think, to you know, grant dignity to what's there. This, it, it, there's there's dignity afforded to a corpse because of what it was, what it once was, and that seems to be a principle in Scripture. But you're right; there is a sense in which something very important is missing there. Okay, so where do we get our immaterial? Well, we've already sort of answered the question earlier. In fact, it sort of ended up as a quiz question, right? Well, the very first soul, okay, we know, was created directly by God. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a nephesh. Okay, so uh, it is by the product of the breath of God uh, that this was created. So the very first Person, the very first soul, spirit, was immediately created by God by an act of his creative energy. There's basically three theories as to where all other souls come from. Okay, let's look at these in turn. First is the pre existence theory. This holds that all souls exist prior to birth and are inserted into the body either at some point in the human gestation period or at birth. Most variations of this view argue for a previous conscious existence in some previous state. Okay, uh, So reincarnation would be something of a, a, a sort of the obvious one. So this is very popular, I say, here among non-Christian religions. But it has been Christianized to some degree uh, by some some uh, early Christian early church fathers because it became popular in Jewish circles. Okay, so uh, you previously were someone else. 
okay, or something else, or an angel, or something like that. The chief obstacle, of course, to this is its failure to account for the origin and universality of sin, which is very important to us. Romans 5 tells us that Adam's sin brought sin into the human race and that the solidarity of all human souls in Adam accounts for sin's universal experience. Okay, uh, it's, it's not as though Adam had inside of him you know, millions of uh, shrill... Uh, little tiny people inside of him, but in him was what was necessary then to produce all souls afterward. Okay, okay. So, so um, we find then that we were all in Adam. It's not as though we come from somewhere else and are imported into bodies uh, that mom and dad produce. So it's uh, and so this whole idea of inherited sin. Uh, makes it impossible that our souls could have had come from anything other than that they are passed down to us, ultimately from Adam, through a series of moms and dads. Okay? So, we've, we discard this idea here that there could possibly have been some sort of a pre-existence of souls, even though it's very popular, particularly in non-Christian religions, uh, that there are sort of souls wandering about and that they become new people at times. The creationist theory of the propagation of souls holds that the soul of each human is created directly by God in time and joined to the body either at conception, birth, or sometime in between. This is how Strong puts it. It's popular among Reformed theologians such as Charles Hodge, Louis Burkhoff, Herman Bavink, Abraham Kuyper, etc. Okay, so the idea here, mom and dad make a body, and God creates a soul and attaches it to the body. So every soul is an immediate creation by God, and if that would be the case, then we would be able to say that each child that is born is a miracle that is involves some sort of supernatural uh, activity of God whereby he produces a new soul and then connects it uh, to the body uh, that has been produced inside a mom. Okay, and there's debate, as you can see here, which is going to be important to us in, in just a little bit here when we talk about abortion here. There's debate as to when this soul would be attached to the body. Does it happen at, at conception? Well, Strong doesn't say. He said it could be at, at conception, could be at birth, or it could be at some time in between. Well, that becomes pretty important to us when we get to the abortion question, right? So this is this is Strong's uh, understanding here of the creationist view. Yes. So, but our personhood, we as a human, as a person were existent before. He said He said that before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Well, we didn't, uh, yes. But, but the, the point is not that he had a, had a personal acquaintance with us. He knew about us. He understood us. And in fact, the term here is probably that the knowing here is, is, a, is a knowing of choice or selection, not a, a, a knowledge of personal acquaintance. Does that make sense? It doesn't apply to what I was thinking, but okay, yeah, yeah it's it's not as though we, you know, it's not as though you know God. Okay, in saying that, the the point is not that uh, we're all sort of lined up in heaven or wherever God is, 
and uh, you know he, he he has an acquaintance with us, and then he takes us and attaches us to a body. Uh, that I don't think that that's the implication of those words. Uh, the, the the idea here is that he he knows about us and he has selected us for our function in life, not that he had an acquaintance with us prior to our birth. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I wasn't thinking in terms okay. of that. Just I never heard it explained that way before, but yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. So what are the tensions with this idea of creationist view? I've got three. Creationist theory either makes God the author of sinful souls, so he creates them sinful, or he places souls directly into contact with corrupted bodies, with the inevitable result that the soul is corrupted as well. So there's no intermediary between God and sin. God basically produces sinful souls, which is a problem. Like the pre-existence theory, the creationist theory does not account for the solidarity of the human race. Okay? We all have separate existences, each one of us independently created by God, rather than being properly a race, we're like the angels, we're a company of unrelated beings. God creates us all separately, and we are, are not technically a race at that point. It accepts a somatic solidarity, that is, we have bodies that are related to each other but we don't have souls that are related to each other okay and so you know and, and as you know you know knowing your children and your parents and, and all this you know that the resemblance between junior and dad is not just physical <laughs> they've got they've got psychological uh, features they've got intellectual features and such that connect them together. So, so when when mom and dad produce a child, they don't just produce a generic body. They produce a person, complete with not only physical features, but immaterial features as well. Your your mind, your affections, your your personality is 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 quite obviously connected. Are, are, they're connected between families, right? You, you've all observed that. The nut doesn't fall too far from the tree. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the creationist theory, thirdly here, affirms a continuing work of creation. And Genesis 2, I think, seems to put an end to the, to the era of supernatural creation. When God says, God finished his creation... It seems like that what he's saying here is that God no longer is doing ordinary or routine creating. It doesn't mean he can't occasionally do a miracle in which creation is involved. But what happens after this creation week is when the, the supernatural is largely shut down and providence takes over. Okay, That is secondary causation. And so uh, what, what we argue then is that people are instrumental in producing other people. God does not separately create each one over the course of time. Otherwise, it would be really impossible for us to say that God stopped creating. If, in fact, every time a child is born, he's creating. Okay. So it seems like all of this comes together to suggest that 
uh, the, the source of not only bodies, but also souls and spirits, is through procreation, not creation. Okay. Now, this question we sort of, a couple of uh, sort of uh, things we sort of have to track down here. Doesn't regeneration, that is rebirth, the impartation of a new spirit, make a man a new creation or a new man? Doesn't that affirm continuing creation? Well, as we've said here, regeneration shouldn't be viewed as the whole replacement of man's soul and spirit with a new one. Uh, By receiving a new spirit or a new man, the believer does not assume a brand new human immaterial. Rather, he receives a complex of qualities, moral, dispositional, affective, volitional, that are neither inherited nor Adam nor native to his human experience. The new man these new functions, these new inclinations that are activated by God, war with the flesh, the indwelling remnants of sin for domination of the human immaterial and empowered by the spirit, ultimately succeed. So that's, I mean, sort of a technical way of talking about what sanctification is. Okay, You have new inclinations. You have new affections that are brand new to you. And God has... I can say activated them within you so that now you wage war with the remnants of sin that persist in your body and in your spirit and the, the, the idea of sanctification is the gradual overcoming of those old inclinations, those old lusts uh, with, with new ones until ultimately the coming of Christ we are perfected and the old inclinations are ultimately stifled. Okay, does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay, so you're not a new person in that sense. Which leads then to the question, does a believer have one nature or two? Interesting question. So should we talk about us having a, an old nature and a new nature? Uh, or should we think of ourselves as one being with two sort of interior competing parts. I say here, during the 19th century, there was this idea of Keswick theology, which fundamentally altered uh, the Christian conception of post-conversion anthropology. So what happens to a person when they're saved? It suggests that a new man and a new nature could be inserted alongside the old man and the old nature and could even remain inert with the believer within the believer some, for some time before being activated. So what salvation does is you've got the old nature, the old spirit, and God slides a new one in alongside of it. Now, uh, ideally, then they start fighting with one another. Uh, but in Keswick theology, there was actually the idea that you know it might not happen. The fight might act, might not actually start, and so you'd sort of be jump started by the the uh, by a you know a, a, a baptism of the spirit or perhaps a, a dedication or consecration event. And so the idea is that you've got sort of a warring black dog white dog inside of you, and neither one ever wins. They're just equally as strong as each other, and they're just sort of fighting back and forth. Sometimes you listen to the white dog, sometimes the the, the black dog. And so the idea then of sanctification is the counteraction of the old with the new. 
But I say it's theologically possible to address this error by distinguishing between old man and old nature. Okay? The old man, whenever it's described in Scripture, anthropos, the, the old man, has been crucified. That is, the totality of what I once was in Adam has been replaced but what, by what I am in Christ. Okay? This does not mean that I, again, that I am a totally new immaterial, but rather the new man is one who resembles Christ, and it is now the dominant set of affections, the dominant set of, of inclinations in the person, so that it can be said that you are new. You are a man made new, a woman made new in Jesus Christ, and are capable then of doing what God expects of you. Okay? So the old man has been crucified, but the old nature uh, persists as an object of mortification. That can be confusing. I've, intend, I've, in, I've been inclined to follow uh, the, uh, the Reformed understanding that we have the old man, the new man, the old man now usurps the new. Uh, the new man usurps the old so that the dominant inclinations of that person are now Godward. Nonetheless, there reside within that person what we might call the remnants of sin. And the reason I like to put it that way is because I don't want to suggest that it's possible that the old will someday win. It's not true. You know, in sanctification, it's, it's ultimately there's progress. There's no progress. There was no regeneration in the first place. Okay, so there has to be progress, and so I don't like to put competing, you know, old old nature, new nature, as though they're battling one another. I'm inclined to think more in terms of there's a new man, a new set of inclinations, a new set of affections, and it's the dominant one, and it over the course of time then asserts itself. Uh, on those old habits uh, that have been long dogging you, and progress is made. And uh, that's what sanctification is. Progress. Uh, it's not just a counteraction or, you know, uh, today the, the, the white dog wins and tomorrow the black dog wins. Rather, if I can put it this way, the white dog is dominant, and the white dog is winning. Not always as much day by day as we'd like him to, but He's always in the ascendancy, uh, which is why I like to think in terms of one, uh, one nature, a dominant nature that is Christian, spiritual, uh, that is that is taking care of the remnants of sin, the dregs that's there. But does that make sense? That follow? I feel like I'm. Yeah, it's about learning to live in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Right. Yes. A, 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 yeah. You're you're learning to assert. Your, your newfound affections, your newfound inclinations that have been put in you by God to, 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 to say no uh, to those, those habits and, and tendencies that were yours from your previous life. Yep, very good. Okay. That leads us then to the third, and I think the correct view of the propagation of souls, and that's called the Traducian view, which holds that the entire person, both body and spirit, are transmitted by the parents in natural generation. 
the whole human race was not immediately created in Adam, so it's not as though inside of Adam was were billions and billions of tiny little people. Okay, that's not that's not the not the point here. Uh, but rather, uh, they were essentially in his loins, and perhaps we get a sense of that from Hebrews seven. You know, that's the that the the idea that Abraham uh, that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek in the loins of of Abraham. Uh, so the idea here is that you know because Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek, certainly Levi is less than Melchizedek because Levi is subservient to Abraham and effectively in his loins. So that's the argument there. And I think that's I think it, it helps us to understand what's going on here. Okay. So just as Adam was born in the image of God, so also Seth was born in the image of Adam. That's exactly what what uh, Genesis 5 says. Uh, Adam and Eve produced a child in their image. Same language. So unless we posit that the image of God in man is strictly physical, we have to conclude that the image passed on from Adam to Seth includes immaterial elements. So all humans after Adam are derivatively in God's image, but are more precisely in Adam's image, complete with his sin nature. So we're still the image of God, but also the image of Adam, uh, which has had a corrupting influence on all that he, all those in his lineage. So God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And then probably the critical passage here, more than any other, is Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Okay, so before you actually even commit sins or specifically commit the same sin that Adam committed, you were a sinner. Because you are you are in, you you are included here. Death reigns upon you know my my little grandson that is still three weeks away. He's already a sinner, even though he has not yet sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. He is still classified here as a sinner because he is in the image of Adam. Uh, By the transgression of the one, the many died. Judgment rose from one, resulting in condemnation. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners. So we get a little bit of a head start here on the doctrine of total depravity, uh, because in sin my mother conceived me. This doesn't mean that it was a sinful act that produced me, but what was produced was sinful. Uh, Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Ephesians 2.3, all natural born descendant Adams are by nature children of wrath. They're all, all, when we're born, we're born under the wrath of God because of the sin that is within us. Okay? So, uh, the whole point, then, we answered more than our question, uh, but the uh, the question being asked here is, where do souls come from? Mom and dad make them. That's the final answer.
Okay. One last question before we go for tonight, and that is, how does this affect our view of abortion? Okay, let's throw a little bit of a practical matter in here, and hopefully we're all on the same page here. If not, I'd like to think that this discussion will bring us closer to that point. Those who hold to a creationist or pre-existence theory of the propagation of souls are left to decide when that soul is attached to the embryo. So that's, again... One of, the, one of the tensions I have with the creationist view. When is this created soul that God makes, when's it attached? Strong says, I don't know. It might be at conception, it might be at birth, or it might be sometime in between. Well, if that's the case, then we sort of end up into this question mark as to, is abortion okay? Well, it depends. Has the soul been connected or not? How do we know? And then the question was, when the heart starts beating, or when the breathing starts, or whatever. Okay, there, and there's there's no consensus because there's. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's in some senses the question is the question doesn't need to be asked. Uh, but the answer is is none of the above because we don't believe in the creationist view of the propagation of souls. We believe in the traducian view, which means that as soon as mom and dad come together and produce then this 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 uh, um, this fertilized egg or perhaps we could say the zygote um, that is the, the, the this this you know within within the course of hours uh, this this there's a sort of a you know, a blast to say I mean, it's just a, this explosion of of development here and then it attaches to uh, the, uh, the 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 mother now, um, so we've, we've suggested here uh, that that must happen immediately. Soon as, as soon as that person is a distinguishable collection of cells that can be defined as a human, independently of mom and dad. So it's not the egg and the sperm; they're not half a person each. Okay, it's when they come together and produce something new. That is when the soul is. Created, so the soul exists uh, from that moment. Okay, and so you can read some of that uh, discussion there. But uh, questions here on that? I mean, I, I think we have very clearly answered whether abortion is right or wrong uh, by our understanding of when the soul is produced. If mom and dad produce that soul, uh, then it's pro- then it's produced at at, uh, at at conception or blastocyst. Uh, when when that becomes an, an independent uh, entity, there. Okay. Questions on that? Okay. Well, that's where we're going to call tonight. See if you can get home before the snow starts swirling around here. And we'll, it's already snowing. Here. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was at home, so gotta get out of here. <laughs> Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.